Welcome to Dark Corners with David Allen Boyles. Dark Corners is brought to you by Gestalt Media, an independent publishing company dedicated to serving independent authors. Just Retribution, Part 2, by David Allen Voiles. September 23. I dread to record what happened next. Pacing the perimeter of my cell does not help me to forget. Thus, I try again to exorcise the memory through writing. Although I never reached an area that could accurately be called a clearing, I soon found a place that appeared to be hospitable enough with only a small degree of effort, just enough space to build a fire and stretch out on the ground. The surrounding woods were so dense that the light of the fire seemed to go no further than six feet in any direction, revealing only the faintest suggestion of trees and underbrush. In this eerie light, the entire environment appeared incredibly hostile and menacing. Every shadowed branch seemed to be a monstrous arm reaching towards me with grotesque, gnarled claws, and I felt that I was watched. Perhaps the eeriest phenomenon of all was the absolute silence of the forest, for there was not the single chirp of a cricket nor the hoot of an owl. The air was still and heavy, not the slightest breeze stirred. The total effect of the deathly atmosphere convinced me that despite my rattled nerves, I should try to go to sleep at once. I am not ashamed to say that I slept that night as a child who is afraid of the dark with blankets pulled over my head as if they could protect me from any evil. That night, the dream came again. It began as usual with my walk through the woods, but this time it seemed more powerful than usual. Everything appeared clearer and more distinct, more familiar. Soon I came out of the woods and saw the house. Although there was no moon, the house was surrounded in a peculiar glow that seemed paradoxically to emanate from the house itself rather than from an outside source. It resembled the luminescence of phosphorus, or what the locals here call foxfire, as opposed to the light of a lantern or a lamp. As usual, the magnetic force of the house drew me to the front door, and this time I noticed the words Abaddon Hall carved into the stone lintel above the doorway. Instead of awakening as I had been accustomed at this point in the dream, this time when the door slowly opened as if by an invisible hand, I found that I could see inside. As I continued to glide into the mansion, I noted by the candlelight that flickered from brass brackets along the walls of the hallway the rich, elegant, and yet somehow frightening design of black print on deep red wallpaper, all offset by white woodwork. The floors into the other rooms I passed were carpeted with exotic rugs that displayed symbols I found both hauntingly familiar yet indecipherable. In ornately carved niches on both sides of the hall stood beautiful statues of nude human forms in postures of agony 
intermixed with forms of demonic horned creatures captured in a moment of frenzied ecstasy. An arched doorway at the end of the hallway led into a large darkened space. I became aware as I made my silent way into the room that although logic dictated that I must still be inside the mansion, I could not distinguish a ceiling over my head. I experienced the sensation of having moved into a courtyard at twilight. All was bathed in a deep blue light. Torches blazed from dragon-faced sconces on thick Doric columns, evenly spaced as to create a circle in this large open arena. No object sat atop the abacus on any of these columns, as one might expect given their prominence in this arena, yet I felt for no discernible reason that some thing, some unseen entity perched on each one watching. I felt that I had moved into an entirely different dimension in which time and space no longer applied. In the center of the courtyard stood an ebony altar with elaborately carved ornamentation and a large crimson cushion sat before it. As I continued to glide up to the altar, I became conscious for the first time upon entering the mansion of a low, constant murmur that I realized had been present all along, perhaps pitched so low at first that I was not aware of it. It had gradually grown in volume so that now, as I reached the altar, I could recognize the sound as the combined chanting of many unseen voices. The chanting was unintelligible to me, despite the thought that it reminded me of the hypnotic and eerily beautiful Latin chants of Gregorian monks. Having studied Latin in my youth, I would have recognized it as such, but this chanting was communicated in a language I somehow knew was not of earthly origin. It was both beautiful and terrifying. The rhythm gradually took possession of me, each repetition sweeping over and through me like a wave until I realized that I was repeating the chant myself. Somehow, despite the unknown diabolic language of the chant, I understood what I was saying. With this realization of what I was chanting, I looked down and saw that I was now kneeling before the altar dressed in a long black robe. I jumped up to flee in the direction from which I had come, but when I turned, I saw that there was no longer an entrance to the courtyard. The arched doorway had somehow vanished. I turned back to the altar to find that on it now rested a shining bronze coffin. The metallic sides of the sarcophagus reflected the dancing flames of the torches on its surface so that it appeared to be burning as well. The lid was open, displaying its contents to anyone close enough to peer inside. As before, an unseen force compelled me to approach this object that I had no desire to see. Eventually, I could tell that the coffin contained a corpse. Rotting flesh hung from its bones. 
The chest had caved in to reveal the remnants of shriveled, decomposed organs, and the wispy hair had fallen away from the head in patches. As I looked at the face of the corpse, the eyelids slowly opened, and I realized with a sickening horror that I was looking straight into the glazed eyes, the irises covered in pale, bluish-gray cataracts of my own dead body. I immediately awoke to find myself once again by the dying embers of my campfire, hearing only the fading echoes of my own scream in the woods. I felt my heart pounding so fervently that I thought it would certainly explode in my chest. As I looked at my surroundings in the light of the moon which had risen while I slept, I realized now that these woods were the same that always appeared at the beginning of my dream. I knew then that the mansion could not be far away. I had camped only a few yards away from this entrance to my hell. My heart pounds now just as it did then. I cannot write further. September 24. You who read this account cannot fathom the sheer terror I felt at being so close to the place that had plagued me for years. With the realization of how close I was to the object of my terror, despite the fact that this had been my sole destination, my only objective, I now was determined to get away from there as quickly as I could. I mounted my horse and without a thought about the provisions I was leaving behind, began to lash the beast furiously. Although it was still dark, my terror forced me to race back toward Grey Eagle at full gallop without stopping until daylight, at which point I finally allowed my exhausted horse to rest and drink from a mountain brook before resuming my journey. When I arrived at the hotel that afternoon, I went straight to my room without saying a word to the people who, interrupted and wide-eyed by my abrupt appearance and rude ascent up the stairs, had been chatting amiably with Mr. Stepp at his desk. Once inside the privacy of my room, I threw myself on the bed fully clothed and was blessed mercifully with the immediate peace of dreamless unconsciousness. I did not awaken until the following afternoon, and when I opened my eyes I could not remember where I was. As the events of the last two days returned, I could not distinguish for some time what had actually happened and what I had only dreamed. The only thing I knew with certainty was that during the entire period I had not eaten a bite, so I decided to go downstairs to the dining room and replenish myself with a good meal and strong drink. Step saw me before I had even descended the stairs and greeted me with a cheerful salutation, which I noticed was mixed with a breath of relief. Good morning, sir. Or, or should I say good afternoon. We were afraid you might have passed on to the next world, judging from your... Uh, how should I say this, wearied appearance when you arrived yesterday. Mrs. Stepp and I were preparing to send a boy up to check on you. I trust you are well. I grumbled that I was quite all right and wished to myself that it were true. I informed him that I would like to take a meal if it were not too much to expect food from a hotel that boasted of such a fine dining room. He assured me that the kitchen was, in fact, in operation, despite the hour being late for lunch and too early for dinner. He led me into the dining room where I was relieved to see that I was the only patron present, and he then disappeared to instruct his meager staff to prepare me a special meal. 
Upon his return, I have to admit being pleased that the wretch did have the forethought to bring me a small tumbler of whiskey which I downed in a single gulp. As he gaped at me, I slapped the glass down on the table and said, Might a man have a refill, or is there a house limit? He returned with the glass and a bottle and set both on my table. I nodded my appreciation, poured myself a generous portion and took another swallow, enjoying the warmth as it flowed through my body. Feeling a bit more relaxed, I ventured a question of the innkeeper as I waited for my repast as to whether he had ever heard of Abaddon Hall. Ah, so that's why you arrived looking so haggard. That's extremely challenging terrain, even for someone familiar with it. I know because I made that journey once myself as a boy. You've been there? I asked incredulously, angered that I had not heard this from him before. The fellow at the store said, Don't ever listen to anything Ben Porter tells you, Step interrupted. He's a superstitious old fool, and a scoundrel besides. No, there have been some odd occurrences at that place, I'll admit, but nothing that cannot be explained with just a modicum of logic. At the mention of odd occurrences, my heart skipped a beat, and I pressed him for an explanation of what he meant. Well, there have been several parties at various points in time who have asked directions as how to find Abaddon Hall, and who have reportedly traveled there and then were never seen again. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they were killed, as most of them were of no account to begin with. You know the type, drifters and gamblers. They probably just moved on to other parts, knowing that they weren't welcome here. The strange thing to me is why they ever sought the hall in the first place. Perhaps they thought there was money or valuables hidden in locked cellars or vaults, although I can't imagine that being the case myself. Nothing likely remains out there but the ruins of a dilapidated old house. Turning to me with renewed interest, he asked, Did you find it? Yes, I answered and then added, Well, no, that is, I, I mean, uh, damn it, man, I, I don't really know. Seeing his face blanch a bit at my confused and angry outburst, I added a bit more softly, I turned back before I ever reached it. This last description Step had given of the mansion baffled me, for in my dream I distinctly remembered that the house was most definitely not in a state of decay at all, but presented as being immaculately and elegantly maintained. But then I had only seen the house as it appeared in my dream. Did anything else strange ever occur there? I queried desperately, praying that Step would provide some clue. Well, there was the poor fellow they found out there about five years ago, he answered. Pritchard was his name, I believe. It seems a team of surveyors stumbled across the house and found him crawling around in the cellar like an animal, living entirely off vermin, rats, and spiders and such. He must have been there for some time, too, because he resembled nothing as much as a bag of bones when the sheriff brought him back to Grey Eagle. They kept him in the jail until the circuit judge arrived two weeks later and ordered him to be taken to the new state asylum. Step paused to shake his head, apparently in maudlin sympathy for the madman. Quite fortunate that the state just completed building this hospital for the insane here in the western part of the state, as the only other facility like it is the Dorothea Dix Hospital in Raleigh. He gazed out the window as if able to see the building to which he had alluded. 
I firmly set my glass down with a loud thump and stared at him with tightened lips and a single raised eyebrow. Noticing my growing impatience with his rambling as well as my empty glass, he quickly poured me another dollop of whiskey, cleared his throat, and quickly resumed his narrative. The investigators had hoped that he might reveal some details about a murder that had occurred months prior to his discovery at Abaddon Hall, but the poor fellow was out of his mind and spoke only gibberish and nonsense. A murder. At last I had gained some information of worth. I knew that this demented soul might be able to help me solve the conundrum of my nightmare, so I immediately made arrangements for traveling to the asylum in Morganton. Oddly, despite the compulsion that has driven me ceaselessly, I hesitate to record the ending of my tale. An extreme sense of foreboding doom pervades. A black cloud of depression sinks over me, overriding even my fears so that I cannot write another word. September 25 And now, it ends. Or does it just begin? Six months ago, as I have already written, I met Jeremiah Pritchett under the guise of being his brother, but I did not share all of what he said. Once we were alone in his cell, it became evident that Pritchett had moments of clarity in which he indeed had the answers to the questions I sought. He was sane enough in those lucid moments to know that I was no acquaintance of his, but strangely enough, he also knew my terrible secret. Oh, how I both yearned to know the truth, while at the same time trembled to hear it. I'm reminded again of Dante, of those trembling damned souls in the second circle of hell standing before Minos, the horrible judge of the dead, dreading their eternal punishment, while unnaturally compelled to confess and hear their awful sentence. With intensely burning eyes that bored into my soul, Pritchard asked, it's been calling you too, hasn't it? I... I don't know what you mean. The house. It's been calling you. I know. I can see it in your eyes. It called me two years ago. I've dreamed it a thousand times, over and over again, until I finally had to go to the house. I resisted as long as I could, but finally I could stand it no longer, and I gave in. He paused and gazed at me even more intently. I feel certain that you know the feeling. As he spoke of the mansion, his eyes widened and began to shine with an unnatural luster. They were horrible eyes, eyes that pierced one's heart, for they had looked into the horrors of hell. They had seen death. In his fervor, Pritchard gripped the lapels of my coat and pulled me closer so that his spittle landed on my face as he spoke. You'll give in too some day, only you won't return as I did. I witnessed the murder of a man and did nothing to stop it, nor did I report it. I ran away, but then the dream started. The house called me, pulled me mercilessly until I was forced to find it. In the house, I relived my dream and felt my mind slipping away from the repulsive image I was forced to see. The horrible scene played out before me of my own forthcoming death. 
<sighs> the punishment fits the crime. I witnessed the death of an innocent man. I was complicit in that murder and did nothing to stop it. So now, I witness my own violent death over and over, a knife across my throat while those nearby watch, my garbled prayer for help as useless as my fingers in trying to stop the streaming blood. Pritchard released his hold on my coat and leaned back. But for now, I live. He stared at me for what seemed like minutes before speaking again. Unnerved, I merely waited in silence. For the time being, I know my death will come eventually, and I know exactly how it will play out. You, however, will not survive your visit, at least not in the traditional sense of the word. You will be driven to Abaddon Hall even knowing what fate awaits you so that you will be released from the dream. His intense gaze lessened, his face relaxed, and he began to smile. You will not die there, at least not as we typically think of death. You will be trapped in a state of life in death. Alive in spirit, but dead in body. Trapped in your own coffin for eternity. Conscious of your wretched state. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the funny thing is, <laughs> you will go willingly to your undeath. My heart was racing in my chest. My face grew hot. My ears were filled with the sound of his insane glee as if it were amplified a hundred times. I screamed to the asylum attendants to come and let me out. But having heard Pritchard's laughter, they were already on their way. They pulled me from Pritchard's cell and because of my extreme agitation, took me to a room where a doctor was summoned. Once he arrived, he spoke in a soothing voice while administering an injection to calm my shattered nerves. In my temporarily subdued but still frightened state, I poured out my whole story. Odd, a calmness now abides, a lake devoid of any breeze. But below the surface, far, far below, something stirs. September 26. I write once more, but then it is time. I have been here six months and still the dreams come. Pritchard was right. The compulsion will override my fears. I will escape and go to the house. The attendants can't watch me every second, and I have learned their slovenly careless habits. I already know my means of escape. Within a week I'll be gone from here. I'll go to that monstrous house, and then the dreams will stop. Yes, the dreams will stop. But unlike Pritchard, I won't leave the house. For me, the dream will become a reality. My death in life for eternity will begin. I will spend eternity 
mindful of how I am trapped in a rotting corpse. As Pritchard said, the punishment fits the crime. Pritchard only witnessed a murder. I committed one. When I fought with Thomas Wilson, my business partner all those years ago, the quarrel escalated to a physical altercation in which I struck him with a cane, a vicious blow to his head. A blow I assumed, quite understandably, that no man could have survived. I buried him in an unmarked grave in a remote wooded area. When a nagging obsession, not unlike the dream that haunts me still, drove me to revisit the burial spot the next day, I discovered to my horror that the grave was disturbed, but not from without. Wilson's head, shoulders, and arms protruded from the grave. His hands were shredded and bloody, the fingernails torn loose where he had ultimately managed to reach the surface, only to succumb to his death there in his ironic and unsuccessful attempt to claw his way completely out of his grave. I had buried him alive. That concludes this episode of Dark Corners with David Allen Voiles. Music was provided by Mombi Yulman. To find other works by David Allen Voiles and keep up with all his projects, please visit his official author website, davidallenvoiles.com. Hope to meet you again soon in The Dark Corners. <laughs>